Hello everyone. Before we start today's podcast, some exciting news for you. You can experience the Inside Politics podcast live in Dublin on May 16th when Hugh Linehan, Jennifer Bray and I will be joined by Cliff Young of Ipsos, one of America's top pollsters, to talk about the US election, our own local and European elections and much more. It's a breakfast event kicking off at 8am in Trinity College. If you'd like to attend, you can get tickets at irishtimes.com forward slash events. That's irishtimes.com forward slash events. I hope we see lots of you there. Hello there, and you're very welcome to the Politics Podcast from the Irish Times. I'm Hugh Linehan. Joining me in studio today were our political reporter, Sarah Barden, and our deputy political editor, Thea Kelly. Among the subjects under discussion were Prudent Pascal Donoghue, uh, Leo Varadkar's public image, what's going on in Sinn Féin after their emergency Ardesh, and gender balance in political debate in Ireland. You may hear a few disagreements along the way. Fiek, I'm looking at your Inside Politics Digest this morning. Uh, It's all about uh, Prudent Pascal. Uh, The summer budget statement uh, Mm. came out this week. It's usually a pretty underwhelming occasion anyway. It seems particularly underwhelming this year. Yeah, it's kind of what initially was intended to be a couple of years ago when Fine Gael Labour in office. We can't believe it's it's not really a budget, but it it was initially intended to be almost half a budget where you'd have some sort of policy announcements. That, that never the intention never turned out to be the case. Yeah, I think this newspaper foolishly cleared a couple of pages to fill it with lots of yes, interesting detail, yes, which didn't actually didn't materialize. Yeah. And then what it has become is a very dry economic document in which they outline what they believe as of now they have to spend in the budget in October. So it's kind of done by necessity because you have to tell the European Commission in the springtime anyway what you believe your parameters are. So what initially started out as a spring t- statement is now the summer statement. So what Pascal Donahue did yesterday, he said, look... Um, I believe I have 3.4 billion of money to spend in this budget in October, the so-called fiscal space, although he says he's moving away from that concept. But he says, uh, actually, it's not quite correct. I'll correct myself in a second. But he says that he has already committed 2.6 billion of that between public sector pay, demographic costs, capital uh, commitments in the Project Ireland 2040 plan. Uh, So he's saying he only has 800 million of new money to play around with on budget day. Now, the rub in this is that he says that he could spend an extra $900 million on top of that, but would push us further into deficit and he does not want to do that. You may remember like our whole leprechaun economics and how multinationals play with our economic figures. That So those kind of off-kilter figures feed into the European Commission's calculations, and by those figures we would actually have what is the $4.3 billion, strictly speaking, fiscal space to spend because our figures are off kilter. That I means. have to be honest, my eyes are starting to glaze over a bit about, about, <laughs> so, about, with, with all these numbers. No, but I mean, it's, this, is, this is one of the problems with these discussions because this is bloody important stuff. But the point is, I suppose, that uh, in the same way as during the Celtic Tiger years, the government, Charlie McCreevy and Brian Cowan after him, you know, there was, there was boom time cash coming mm. through the doors and it went straight out the door again on tax cuts yeah. and expenditure and public sector pay rises and all that stuff. And then when the, when mm. the, when the tap dried up, uh, it was a complete disaster. Yeah, so what Pascal Dunn was saying is basically I'm not going to spend all the money that's available to me. By my calculations, I think I have 800 million new money to play around on budget day. That's, again, splitting a two-to-one ratio, as we know, uh, between spending increases and tax cuts, um, although I would be... Highly, it's highly likely that he will raise taxes elsewhere to fund income tax cuts and dealing with the, the income tax bans, as he did last year. So it'd be tax neutral? I would, not necessarily, but he'll have to raise some taxation to pay for tax cuts and spending increases. 
So he, he politically, that's the, the kind of dry economics of it and the, the boring economics of it. But politically, what he's been trying to do for a number of months is to, we all come into this uh, conference supply deal thinking the first two budgets are going to be tight, the third is going to be bonanza, you know, shotguns in the air, party time is back again. What they've done gradually is to try and change that perception to say, oh, hang on, we don't have that much money. You know, we already committed this, we already committed that, we pull it back a bit. So politically, they've obviously decided that prudence is the best policy now and that the public do not want before an election the typical old-style pre-election budgets of three and four billion euro. So politically, what he's also tried to do is almost box Fianna Fáil in. So he's saying, this is what this is what I have decided, me, Pascal Donoghue, not the European Commission, it's the appropriate level of money to be spent. And if you disagree with me, you're going to increase the deficit. He has, to a certain extent been successful in that because the Fianna Fáil statement yesterday basically accepted his figures. A couple of months ago, they saw what he was up to uh, and believed that he was setting a political trap for them. And they clearly, I think, had a think between themselves and said, OK, what way do you approach this? The best way to approach this is to be responsible. And if you notice, the statement from Michael McGrath, Barry Cowan yesterday spoke about the stability we offered the country in confidence supply. That's exactly what Michal Martin said at the weekend. So they've clearly hit in this message that this is the stability we are providing the country. And if they're to follow through on that argument, they have to do the third budget. And I think they've already reconciled themselves to the fact that it is not going to be a massive budget and they're going to see it through. Do you agree with that, Sarah? And does that put Fianna Fáil in a rather uncomfortable box, not to mention one that they historically the party isn't used to being in. They should be going full bore opposition to, to all this and be looking for, give the money back to the people. The way I see the summer economic statement is like signing your pioneer pledge and then six months later, you know, having an agon of vodka in the field with your friends or promising your parents when you have a, or your uh, neighbours or your partner when you're having a house party. It'll be really quiet. It's just a couple of friends over mm. and then they wake up to the gaff being absolutely wrecked mm. the next morning. Anyone who thinks that this budget will not be will not provide some goodies for people just doesn't understand politics. The reality is whether we have an election in November, January or July, this is the election that Fine Gael will go to um, the country, as will Fianna Fáil. And anyone who thinks that there won't be additional measures for middle income earners, as, uh, as was indicated yesterday by Pascal Donoghue, or more money for pensioners, just, you know, it's just, it's, it's just doesn't stand up to scrutiny. Like, mm. you know, Pascal is prudent Pascal, as as Mm. Fiek put in his digest this morning. He's a very shrewd political operator. But he's also, you know, he's also a politician. And he knows that if he's going to a general election, it may be this year, it may be early next year, he's not going to go to it Mm. on a a budget that doesn't give something back to everybody in the audience. So is there, is most of this spin? Is that that what you're saying? I mean, he's saying that he's he's putting out this posture and this appearance, but the reality is it's going to be business as usual. What I think think he tried to do was to dismantle the expectation that it was going to be a massive 3.4 billion euro budget. Sarah's right. The last two budgets we've had have been around the 1 to 1.5 billion mark. And that has been... You know, you got a fiver in your pension, you got a fiver in your child benefit, you got a bit of income ta- cuts in your USC, you got the thresholds uh, the, at which you hit the higher rate of income tax raise. But so I think what we're seeing is him trying to bring this budget back in line with those budgets. So there's still going to be goodies to go around, which is not of the level that we all thought it was going to be three years ago. It's not going to be a 3.4, 4 billion budget. Yeah, but there are two parts to this. One is, what's the best thing for the current Minister for Justice to do for the economy? And there are a lot of economists mm. making approving mm. noises, including mm. our own, you know, Cliff Taylor in today's newspaper. Mm. You know, the oldest thing of being pro-cyclical and anti-cyclical mm. and don't be, you know, blowing loads of money when the economy is in, mm. at, at risk of overheating anyway. And the other one is the is the political calculation that, you know, that, that you're talking about. Um, Irish governments have never quite managed to square those, have they? Are you saying it's still going to happen again? 
I think, you know... I mean, we shouldn't be borrowing money, past, should we? When no, we shouldn't. Having, they, and and Fianna Fáil boom. actually agree with that. They say, like, privately, they're saying, look, we can't really be borrowing now again. If we're not going to do it now, when are we going to do it? When are we going to fix this budgetary problem? So there seems to be a broad agreement between the two parties that this 800 million figure there, thereabouts, is what you get to whilst maintaining that trajectory. But the question is going to be, do we follow the pattern of last year by raising other taxation measures to pay for... But the budget package, as Sarah says, for your fiver, for your increase, your cuts uh, in income tax, and we Pascal Donoghue and Michael McGrath kind of took off the low hanging fruit last year with the stamp duty and commercial properties that was just waiting to be done. More problematic issues may arise this year, like for example, pre-election budget de-raise diesel. Diesel is basically, as someone in government said to me, yeah, we may say we're not going to raise it for the purposes of hauliers and Brexit, but it's actually a tax in the middle classes. The families who drive around the suburbs with the kids in the back of the car, we're not going to do that before an election. Do you cut the, do you increase the 9% VAT rate for the hospitality sector that's been kind of talked about for a number of years? These are the tough choices they're going to have to make this year if they are going to give that budgetary package of whatever, 1 billion plus. The kind of easy options are gone now. Uh, like sugar tax is going to raise you how much? 50 million, 60 million. You need a couple of big ticket items in there, and they're going to have to rummage around for those. Yeah, I mean, I, I'm, maybe I'm too high minded, Sarah. Um, but I mean, I look at Pascal Donahue, and he seems to, you know, I, I mean, I read what he writes. He writes sometimes for the Irish Times. He writes quite interestingly about mm-hmm. politics, and I kind of think there's a bit of substance there. Uh, and of course, you're absolutely right. He's a politician, and item one on the agenda is to get elected. But maybe item two and item three bespeak some kind of a set of ideological principles about the best way to run the country over the next few years. Yeah, I think Am you're, I just being too high minded? No, here? I think you've a, I think you've a fair point, but I also think, you know, we can't ignore the realities of the situation Pascal Donahue finds himself in, where he has a, a leader who wants to go to a general election in the not so distant future on this budget, who wants a, a bit of goodies to go around. But he also has an opposition party whose support he relies upon for the budget to pass. He also has an independent alliance who will throw their toys out of the pram ahead of budget day on whatever issue uh, they see fit to do so on this particular occasion. So I think, you know, if, if we came back and after another general election and uh, Pascal Dunhu was still Minister for Finance, I think we'd really see, you know, the metal and Pascal Dunhu at that occasion. Um, I think it's really difficult for him to do anything concrete or solid. You know, Fiek is saying there, you know, you have to make the tough decisions this year. In reality, um, those decisions that need to be made won't be made in this in this year's budget because they don't have the luxury of making them because, you know, we're in... We're in general election territory. Well, I kind of understand that in relation to things like the diesel tax, which mm-hmm. you, know, you know, which Vic was was talking about. But still, you know, I think as you know, reading you know Harry McGee's digest yesterday about about Pascal about Pascal Donahue, and I was wondering, I often hear from people in your trade, um, listening, and I'm listening mm-hmm. a bit from outside that Pascal Donahue is a you know has a very kind of a, a positive public kind of profile. He's seen mm-hmm. as very amiable and outgoing, um, open. And then people say, but he's actually quite conservative. Does that mean ideologically conservative or as averse to risk-taking? Well, I would say averse to risk-taking. Like, um, you know, he, he, he does see Ireland in a North, as a Northern European country in line with the kind of German way of doing things, the Dutch way of doing things. That's what he sees Ireland as, this new Hanseatic League he's talked about. So that's very much where his point of view is coming from. And I do think that he's so much better house now on being prudent that if he doesn't 
adhere to this budgetary policy this year and he just opens the floodgates in September, he will have done irreparable damage to his own political standing. And I, as far as I know, there was a healthy debate within government around the start of this year, January, February, March, about what way do we approach this budget? Do we want to spend? Do we want to restrict the spending? And he was very much of the view that, no, no, we need to pull some back, we need to hold some back. And it took some convincing of the Taoiseach to get him around to that point of view. Now, is that argument settled? As Sarah says, that's all well and good in the summer, but when you get to September and the pressure is on, that might change. But the, even the Taoiseach statement the other day at a doorstep about, you know, we're not going to risk everything, we're not going to do anything. They seem to be of a mind now that they've decided this is the best course. And, and, and to what extent, if at all, was the way that argument played out influenced by the way in which the last election um, played out when you had an awful lot of talk going on in the run-up to it about the government was waiting and it was going to have a budget that actually finally had a couple of mm-hmm. goodies, to use your own mm-hmm. word, for the electorate and they would get those out and then you had to wait a couple of months for those goodies to mm-hmm. take effect on the electorate and none of that worked. They had a, they had a terrible election, the two But they talked parties. about the re- you know the keep the recovery going at the jet last general election and they were rudely reminded that nobody had felt, not everyone had felt the recovery. So do you want to go into another general election telling everybody you have X, Y and Z to spend and if you vote for us we'll give you A, B and C? Do you know what I mean? And I don't think that's a risk that they will they will take. But also people have in the back of their mind the issue of Brexit and I think most polls would, see, would suggest that people are acutely aware of the mm. um, the consequences that Brexit may bring for Ireland, and I think, you know, I don't think if that's your argument going into a into a budget, mm. what what political party could argue? against that. Well, you, well, you could make the argument and I have no doubt that some of the independents and the parties of the left will make the argument that we have uh, we have a housing crisis of the worst sort whatsoever mm. and the state should be spending more money yeah, to the, fix that fast. The intriguing thing about yesterday as well was that Fianna Fáil are saying this has to be a housing budget if there's one issue this has to tackle housing and health but they seem to be veering more towards housing now. And Pascal who said well hang on we already have committed 1.5 billion in capital expenditure and that's in Project Ireland 2040 and a lot of that's gone on housing. And the question then arises, yeah, but you've decided that. Usually the budget is decided in consultation with Fianna Fáil. They sit down over a couple of weeks and trash out what the budget should contain. So what he seemed to say was, well, we've already decided a lot of the capital expenditure measures in housing. Fianna Fáil want to come with different proposals. That's fine. So on another level there, again, it's incredibly different for, difficult for Fianna Fáil to come in. They have to prize open project around 2040 again. And I think their demands may be slightly different now. It might be, you know, more folks in affordable housing getting you know, tweaking to make sure that supply comes on board. So there's a a various different political kind of traps in this and webs within this that it's going to make the budgetary negotiations very tricky. And I think that it it feeds into an election message of the economy is going well, you know, uh, the country is going well. Yes, there are problems in health and housing, but we fixed it and we are now managing it responsibly. I think that's the key message. Don't ruin it. And I think, you know, if they get Fianna Fáil to... Buy, a lot, buy into that they can say look we've even made a convert to Fianna Fáil yeah, the like difficulty Maggie though is about putting the money in the rainy day fund a half a billion euro in the rainy day fund where people would argue whether or not mm. that should go towards housing you know we've mm. an immediate housing crisis, uh, crisis but then you know in a year's time if there is a property mm. crash you know which all indicators would suggest there may be one will Pascal Donoghue you know, be the wise man when he has five hundred million in a mm. in a rainy day fund in which he can rely upon when things go yeah. belly up. We should like we are talking very much about Fine Gael and Fianna Fáil here. We should also remember that they're not just the only two parties in the doll. Obviously, they're they are the ones that formulate the budget. But the Labour Party has taken that position that, that Sarah said they are accusing Pascal Dunne of basically pulling a political stroke here. 
by holding some money back and they say, look, there's far more there to spend than you're letting on. They don't subscribe to the idea of a rainy day fund. They say this is a rainy day when you have issues mm. of health and housing to solve. But Fianna Falls, uh, the rainy day fund was their idea. They're bought into it. The government are bought into it. And, you know, it'd be very difficult to break that apart now. And to what extent does that political dance work there now then, that Micheál Martin has put Barry Cowan, who's a, a more pugnacious kind yeah. of a, you know, but a figure that, dealing with some of these issues on the floor. That, the was, that was the fear. Like, I remember the day the Fianna Fáil reshuffle was on holidays, actually, and I got a text from someone in government going, that's it, they're going to blow up the budget uh, because they've put Barry Cowan in public expenditure. I don't think that's the case. Like, Micheál Martin last week, I was speaking to him myself, and he said he is now flagging the October council as the next big milestone that needs to provide stability. So that, to me, said, we're signed on all the way till October now. And, so, and the, so therefore that effectively is going to get you through the budget. Yes, and, and the, the arguments he was saying, and Michael McGrath said it today again in Morning Ireland, they said it in the door, said they've obviously sat down and said, our argument is we provide the country with stability. This is the counter Leo Varadkar saying, well, they're going to cause an election by, you know, not renewing the deal. They say, we provided stability. And in order to do that, you have to be signed up to the budget. And all the vibes I'm getting so far is that they they are going to do it. And they've always wanted to do it, but they've reconciled themselves with this kind of budgetary jiggery-pokery. Well, I, I think Fix right. I think, you know, Michal has been quite clear. I think that I, I genuinely believe this budget will pass everything it's to play for after that. But there was two reasons that Barry Cowan was put into that, into that uh, portfolio. Number one is because... Um, He's a little bit more of a grassroots favourite than perhaps uh, Michael McGrath would be. Understands the mood of Fianna Fáil, you know, his family is inbred in in the party. But the second reason, which nobody really probably realised at the time, was Barry Cowan's put there to watch Michael McGrath. You know, explain that to me. A couple of months ago, you know, prior to the abortion referendum. It looked like Michal Martin was in a bit of a bit of bother, you know. Uh, Thirty-four of his TDs were standing in a photograph opposing a policy that he was canvassing for, and the only alternative at that stage seemed to be uh, to Michal Martin as leader was Michael McGrath. Uh, he had the support of the majority of the parliamentary party on his stance on abortion. He's a very fine uh, political operator. He's really articulate when it comes to media, so. Michal Martin's, you know, he's, he's he's quite wise and he knew, you know, Michael McGrath could potentially go on a solo run if mm. if left there unobserved. Mm. And I would see it that, uh, that uh, Michal Martin made the decision to put Barry Cowan in there to keep a very yeah, close exactly eye on Exactly the kind of insight that, I, insight that our listeners like to come to this podcast. Let's go, so let's go, in, interim, for, let's go in wheels within wheels again and let's forget, like, the Cowans don't forget either. The Cowans remember who took who took Bart Brian Cowan out all those years ago. So absolutely. So an election in February then. It would seem to be going in that direction now because there is this kind of dance that you know the October Council is now there. Michal Martin mm. said that's really important. The budget is now looking like it's going to be agreed. Um, so it's an it's election a week before Britain. It's a, que- uh, a month before Britain. But then you know, the okay, if, if he if he says that if he says that October twenty eighteen is so important, then why not March twenty nineteen? when Brexit actually takes effect. And there is talk this week, I saw, of even a special council meeting in December or November. This will go on and on. Um, so the question, I think, would be is when does Leo Varadkar formally approach him to extend the deal? He said he wants to do it before the budget. So when does he do that? Does he do it in September? And what does Michal Martin say? You know, Michal Martin said it's, it's a matter for after the budget. So, you know, that's the next question, really. When does he approach him? Probably around, let's say, after September. He'll get told no. 
will this is the review is the end of 2018 and then what does Michal Martin do when he then approached him a second time and says it's time to talk well Michal seems to think that it's not going to happen until the end of the year so there does already seem to be a conflict as to whether the negotiations will begin but I, I, I'm i a bit of a cynic I think you know this this delay in introducing the abortion legislation has all got a part to play in when the timing of the next general election will be because if if it was introduced in July it could potentially be passed in October okay so you go to the country with the abortion issue, you know, off the agenda. This sure. is what the people voted for. This is what we've let now, the House of the Rockets have now legislated for. If you give it that extra bit of, I suppose, space and time and it's not passed until the end of the year, we go to the country in February, abortion won't be a general election issue. If we go to the country prior to the passing of abortion mm. legislation, it will absolutely be an issue. But also the second thing is that Leo and Fine Gael are very much going up in the polls, you know, that the, there's no question or doubt about that. But he's also mindful that there's something that may potentially, you know, he's had a, he hasn't had a very difficult time as leader. Really, the biggest controversy has been the cervical check issue. People have supported the government's position on the Brexit. Yeah, the Brexit issue, which was a bit of a wobble. Yeah, but I, I, it didn't, it didn't, uh, it didn't reflect mm. anywhere in the polls. Right. People actually, there you is, know. There is a view among some of the front pages of Fianna Fáil that he's doing so well the best we can do is sit and wait for the halo of the fall off him and, you know, let's just sit it out and why not do another year if we have to? And, 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 and speaking of that, Leo as a product, how's that being developed or managed? We were hearing of, of a couple of leaks over the course of the last few days about what the approach is to the presentation of, of, of Leo Varadkar. Yeah, is it's it? something independent of the story about uh, Fine Gael road test slogans about, you know, let Leo lead on. Prudence, not promises, was one that hardly would get the juices flowing. Uh, I, I can't remember the rest of them. They all sound terrible. Yeah, but there is what it is. Is there's <laughs> let the, Leo lead on is yeah. really really. I terrible. think that was kind of tongue, tongue in cheek. Uh, it, it I think really the one didn't. they've chosen the the one that won, as far as I know, uh, fake is the it was Leo's team. Let Leo's team lead or something. I think that's the one they've actually chosen. If you look at their social media account, mm. they have all these uh, Fine Gael's social media account. They have all these photographs of yeah. Leo standing with Simon Harris, mm. Pascal Donahue, and you'd want to stay away from the gin and tonics if you were going to have to be shouting that out. Yeah. That slogan from the rooftops, all right. Yeah. But what it is, is they, it, it is is they have there is a a group within the party at the top of the party that is doing all this stuff and it's been very much working away in the background since Christmas and it's with a view to being ready if he wants to call it or when he wants to call it that they got caught in, at Christmas and are not going to get caught again um, so and, it's, and in terms of the day-to-day management of, of the Taoiseach, that's a bit different from his predecessor, for example, is he? I mean, I know yeah, uh, you guys in the political core are, are, are a little peeved sometimes that he doesn't do the sort of doorstep accessibility. Well, Bertie used to do three a day. Uh, someone's reminded me the other day, which is a bit much, but he kind of set this bar. And then there was a there's tradition that the Taoiseach is, is accessible to the press to answer questions on the issue today a couple of times a week, not every day, you know, a couple of times a week. But there is... Is that a tradition back to Bertie or back further than that? I think it goes back to Bertie mostly. I couldn't have to ask some of my esteemed colleagues about whether John Bruton did it or not. But I think it was a kind of an arrangement arrived at because people said, look, we can just approach in the street and ask you questions if you like. Like, if you want to operate that way, we'll do it. And they said, OK, now let's, there's a different way of doing things. We'll do what kind of media haggles or whatever. And I think in keeping with Varadkar taking over, um, a lot of talk last year when he took over was about how he was going to adopt a more not presidential, but more distant style of leadership, uh, kind of the Macron-Jupiterian model, you know, not accessible to the media as much. You know, the parliamentary party would say, and I even noticed myself, he turned up to a commemoration in Dean's Grand Cemetery on Sunday with two cars, so two big shiny beamers. It's this kind of 
projection of the office. And I think that's what we're seeing. They're trying to bring him back into this. We're not that accessible all the time and it's causing a bit of trouble on our front because we feel he's not as accessible or answerable to us as yeah, much as I mean, previous. The, the former leader of Uganda County had a rule that he wouldn't do doorstep with media on a Tuesday, Wednesday and Tuesday and Wednesday because he had answer, he would answer questions in the doll. And, you know, most media accept that he would do a doorstep on, on, on most other occasions. Where Leo comes into a bit of difficulty is that he was more than accessible to the media at every mm. single event that he attended as Minister for Social Protection, as Minister for Transport. Um, he was he or Minister for Health, for that matter, too. He was he was available to us and willing to answer our questions in a very forthright and honest uh and an honest way, it's it's probably got him to the position that he is because even as he says in his uh, Twitter profile, is you know he was a man that was known to talk too much, mm. you know, and, and suddenly he becomes Taoiseach and he starts to why enforce. Do you, why that do you distance. think he's done that? Is it about crafting a certain perception of it, or is it, or is it that he's not actually terribly I, I, good at these? He I, has a rule though, which I think is actually important in this conversation: is that if there is a controversy um, in health, if there's a controversy in justice, if there's a controversy, his rule is is that the minister in that portfolio has to be the one outing, answering questions before he has to answer the questions on particular subjects. Okay, so well, there's a certain the logic to that. Mm-hmm. There is, but also in people, whilst, let's say, for example, in the cervical check controversy, you know, Simon Harris was out almost every single day on, on the subject matter. And Leo Varadkar didn't take, um, didn't answer questions on the subject only in the doll, and when he t- when he then did the statement as to when um, the announcement the supports were being made available for the women, and he had a, a quite an emotional moment at the at the uh, at the press event. The women who were affected found his intervention quite cynical. Like Emma McNahuna, Vicky Phelan, both went both spoke to Sunday uh, newspapers that weekend, saying that they found him to be. Um, I think the word uh, Vicky Phelan used was she, he cried crocodile tears and so so. It's all well and good to have that very standoffish, mm. uh, you know, and distant relationship with the media, which is, you know, understandable to a certain extent. But also that has repercussions then for how mm. everybody outside our little bubble treats, you know, sees mm. you and and uh, shapes their perception of you. Because really, most people don't care whether or not you guys get to do no. the doorstep with the Taoiseach two or three times a week. And he can, yeah, you get excited <laughs> and it helps to kind of fill the bottom of page five if he yeah. says something halfway interesting. We'll feed a couple of paragraphs into the yeah. story. But I do think he's, he's not that, I mean, I haven't seen him in, you know, in groups. He's not great. He's probably better in a one-on-one no, he's the, he, he's situation. He's not the most, he's not the most. Uh, he's, he's socially not the maladroit. Easy, yeah, he's not the easiest mixer uh, among people. He's not the end of Kenny, go in, thump your arm slap your shoulder type guy. Um, and he can put his foot in it a bit as he did, for example, at that dinner in Washington. You know, yeah, and like, you know, the mood he misjudged the mood. But like, you know, the people around him would say, look, he knows his faults. He's learning from that. And that when he goes on these events now, he'll often have someone with him. So if he's at something, he will have Simon Harris by his side. He'll have Pascal Donahue by his side. He'll have Owen Murphy by his side. So it'll be a crutch there to kind of work his way around with. But I think the... The, 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 the pulling back is quite deliberate and is this about the office and one of his people close to him said to me I had to do a piece on his year anniversary a couple of weeks ago said you know he sees himself more as a kind of a not as a president like he sees his, his engagement with the public more along the lines of what Mary McAleese or Michael D. Higgins would do that type does of that, thing is that, Does that go down well in the Irish political landscape? No Sarah? because I mean look I think we do need to mature our politics do need to mature as our society matures you know and that was seen obviously with the recent referendum result but I don't think in Irish in the Irish political landscape um, I don't think there's anything better than meeting people 
mm. speaking to people. And I think that's that's yeah. where sometimes he falls down because he yeah. is quite a shy to, individual. Yeah, to be fair to him, he meets a lot of people. Like I, a lot, mm. like even the people I speak to in government who, who are, were pointing out his shortcomings quite bluntly to me said, but he does work hard oh, no, and he and is on the road a lot. It's just he doesn't no talk one is to doubt, yeah. No one's doubting that, but mm. I think it's your it's the level of your engagement with the people that you meet. Mm. You know what I mean? And I was at an event with him in Dublin Central. Uh, it feels like a lifetime ago now, but it was probably only a couple of months ago. And they, it was in the inner city. And I had attended those events previously with Andy Kenny who made, you know, the, the troubles in the inner city and the crime in the inner city. One of his key platforms is Taoiseach. As Taoiseach. And... I suppose Leo just struggled in that situation, whereas Enda thrived. And it's mm. it's not it's not you know I think people knew well we knew what you know uh, Leo Varadkar would be like as a Taoiseach. He's mm. not Enda Kenny, but that it seems to be working for him. So yeah, yeah. look, the economy is going well. It's a young government. You can't underestimate the feel good factor around things. I think that's what the hope is that you know that is the the, the, the kind of wind behind the sail that will carry them into office. And as Sarah said, there is there is there is the. There is the blowback to what he this distance he is creating and putting his ministers out front. That I, I, Sarah will disagree with me. I think that he didn't get enough credit for the referendum, and that Simon Harris got Simon Harris I got totally disagree. So, Simon Harris got me, but that's what he did. He 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 let the, he let other people no, take no, no, it on. No, 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 no. no I think we it was, had yeah. the most monumental decision that this one of the most monumental social decisions that this country was about to take, and Leo Varadkar adopted a hands-off policy, approach to it until it became inevitable that this referendum was going to pass in the last so you think he chickened out I don't know if he chickened out he just was you know he just it's it's a policy in which he adopts where he allows his ministers to fight the fire and then when it becomes a success he he takes all the credit if you look back at the referendum campaign had the a misfortune and perhaps pleasure of uh, of covering it from beginning to end Leo Varadkar did about five or six interviews all of which were in the last week, when it all became very clear that this referendum was only going in one way. I disagree. Um, <laughs> I think what he did was... What that did he do? He engineered the entire situation. And he, he was... Because he, he had told people, numerous people had said to me over the last year, it was nigh at a time, that he personally was in favour of 12 weeks from not just this Christmas, the Christmas before. And that he helped steer the situation. I know you. I know. I know. I know you were. I know you. I know you were. Jesus, now Leo Varadkar could have had that personal opinion, and which he's absolutely entitled Mm. to have had for as long as he Mm. has had it, or whatever. He did not have a role in bringing the Oireachtas Committee uh, recommendations to the point that it was at. I am sorry. I just just think he was enjoying this too much. I was. I was. I was told by newspapers he was in favour of twelve weeks from a long way out. And the other thing is, he was the Taoiseach who decided to hold the referendum. And I think the entire his entire approach to the referendum was strategic at times because he knew that you can't... Like, there's not... What what use is it the Taoiseach debating with Pat O'Brien in prime time? I'm sorry, then None. if you could have that argument about what's the use of Micheál Martin and Mary Lou McDonald debating... Because they're leaders of the opposition. He's the leader of government. That's the point. Exactly. That is the point. And he took a completely hands-off approach no, to the I, referendum. No, I totally disagree. I think he managed Folks, I, think folks, he managed I don't think we're well. going to get a resolution here. Journalism <laughs> is the first draft of history. And it'll be interesting to see what the historians may make of that. Listen, on the on the referendum, I mean, you were up in Belfast. Sinn yes. Féin had their special Ardesh, you know, arising from the referendum to change their, their policy in relation to uh, the, the, the legislation on abortion, among other things. But that was the prime reason for the Ardesh. What kind of shape were they in? 
buoyant enough shape. Um, you know, they're still on a high. I feel a bit sorry for the delegates. They've had to go to three yard in the space of six months now. One for Jerry Adams' retirement, one for Mary Lou, Mary Lou McDonald's election, and this one. Which they do is, seem to enjoy them. They do, but even they have their limits. Like the waterfront hall holds about 2,000 people. It was nowhere near full for the leader's address. It's right. quite a strange venue. It's a bit like the convention centre in Dublin. It's kind of a bit all over the shop. But they're in good form. Um, you know, Mary Lou MacDonald has really got off to a flying start and they kind of seem to really be confident in the image they're projecting of a party led by two women. You know, the purple suffragette colours were, were out in force. They played Sisters are doing it for themselves after her speech. They seem to be kind of really amplifying that up a bit. On the so abortion, they're obviously not concerned by these these claims that the, the DUP are being swamped by Republicans and Catholics I don't think so. looking to looking to join them and vote for them. I don't now think so. The, the tenor, I, Carol, Carol Nolan's um, resignation was expected, but I just I sat through the debate on Saturday, and I just kind of thought to myself that it'd be hard for Pat Tobin to. You'd have to think long and hard about staying in this now because. The tone of the debate was almost like a rout. It was almost like, you know, this is a line in the sand. No more of this free vote stuff. The party is the party. There were delegates saying that they were pro-choice for decades and decades and they had to stand on platforms defending the party's position when it was strongly anti-abortion. And, you know, we were trying to get in touch with Pater Tobin. He's asked for a few days to reflect on matters. I just, I'm just kind of tall. As I was sitting in the hall, I was like, I wonder, will it be a wrench for him to stay in? So much so that delegates from his coming and me got up and said, look, this is really, really tough. Please, we're going to lose members over this. The, the, the atmosphere, I thought, wasn't very conducive to him staying in the party. And there's an appetite to just get rid of him. Like, I was people privately say, look, we've had this problem so many times. If he wants to keep pushing this, then just go. This isn't the place for him. It's difficult for Sinn Féin to get rid of him, though. I mean, in a way, with the all due respect to Carol Lowland, she's the first time TD. She's, that constituency is to be mm. merged. She's probably going to lose her seat. She's probably going to lose her seat. Padder is a vote getter for mm. Sinn Féin. In reality, if they're seeking to build the party in the next uh, Dáil and Janet, he is a guaranteed seat. If he was to stand aside and become an independent, mm. it'd be very difficult well, for the party to But what kind of saying, it sounds to me, that, and looking at reports over the last day, day or two, it looks like Sinn Féin, the party, would be willing to probably do some slightly tougher version of what it did at the time of the Protection of Life During Pregnancy Bill, with Padre Tobin, i.e. some form of suspension for a six-month or 12-month period. Yeah. But Padre Tobin might actually feel that he can't well, actually I, remain I, within I, well, the party himself. He, he's obviously thinking about it. I just, the atmosphere in that hall was just so... It would. I would like if you had to kind of put yourself in his shoes and go. If this was me, what would I be thinking? Mm. Would I like? That's four times now he's put motions forward asking for freedom of conscience. Four times they've been rejected, and the message from the delegates loud and clear was: We do not want to have to do this again. Do not try and push us. So the, the party is not just the, not just the leadership. The entire organisation has kind of turned how does against this, How does this feed at all into, obviously there's conscious votes permitted in the, the other two large parties, Fine Gael and Fianna Fáil. Um, how does it fit into the narrative that Sinn Féin is still only a partly democratic party? That, that you know, unanimity is required once some central core of the party has made a decision. Does that play into that or is this a new kind of a internal party debate? Well, they, they always had these debates. Like any order you go to, they have debates, but it's always the case that the leadership motion <laughs> holds sway. What the leadership wants, the leadership gets. You very rarely see the Sinn Féin grassroots standing up and sending something back to the Yard Carla going, no, thanks very much. Um, but, you, you know, there is a debate, but once the ranks are closed, the ranks are closed. That's mm. it. 
and they pull back in into themselves. And I mean, it's hardly a surprise that Sinn Féin enforce the whip on their party members mm. and that people who sure. fall outside the whip get the consequences. But, but even, of their even, even apart saying from that, like, you know, a lot of the other parties would love to be able to enforce a whip like that. Like, mm. Micheál Martin tried to enforce the whip. Even, the apart, even apart from those, 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 those two individual TDs you've mentioned, I mean, presumably, you know, Sinn Féin has substantial support in rural areas in which there was a substantial no vote in places like Donegal. Yeah, is that, that not an issue at all? I, for, well, for I them? think the biggest issue for them is the north of Ireland, where the level mm. of support for what was adopted at the in Fane Ardash at the weekend just isn't there quite frankly and I um, I wasn't at the Ardash so I should say this uh, but from what Fiek has told me and other political correspondents who were there they got the distinct impression that um, the Belfast Brigade weren't necessarily there in the in, in full flow um, at the weekend and perhaps you know they were more enthusiastic about Jerry Adams as leader than they mm. are uh, about Adams Mary very low Lewis key, leader very low key um, but well, the, I mean, there is a shift. There's a, you know, there's a, there's a power shift to the south has happened, hasn't it? Yeah, absolutely. But even if you look at the um, the speech on Saturday night, um, and again, I wasn't there, so I'm just looking at from the TV. Um, the audience seemed to be mostly kind of young, middle class, which absolutely plays to Sinn Féin's objectives and ambitions in the south. Does it play to their objectives and ambitions and their supporters and their core base in the north? That's the difficulty for them. So while they are an all-island party, that partition between the north and the south exists. What do you think? Because you were in the hall. Yeah, I think you were struck by the high high number of young people, not just the free leader's speech, but participating in debates uh, and, you know, contributing to motions. Um, But I suppose they're they're secure in the north. They have nothing really to worry about up there. They kind of have successfully seen off the SDLP. So it's natural that the focus would shift south and grow south and their objective of getting into government in the south, um, you know, I think they're in, they're in, they're in decent enough shape, but nobody wants to talk to them, so they're in a bit of a bind. Finally, I just briefly want to ask you one thing. There's a there's a to my mind hilarious photograph in today's Irish Times in the business pages. It's it's of uh, Pascal Donahue striding purposefully into a room to deliver his summer statement. It is a it's one of those real all the lads photographs. You figure in it quite prominently there, Fiac, as do yeah. many other political correspondents. And uh, I was particularly minded to bring it up because there was a um, there's been a minor spot this morning about the McGill Summer School, uh, yeah. something that tends to get in extensive coverage in the Irish Times' pages um, mm. every every summer, um, and the absence of women in political discourse. I was out at I was out at a, an event, the Talkie Book Book Festival, and we were discussing what was essentially a post referendum discussion. Mm. And quite rightly somebody from the audience pointed out something of which I was highly conscious myself. That it was myself, three other men and one woman, Dervil McDonald of, of of the Independent. And we see this problem in this podcast. Um, we are conscious of it. We try to make efforts to address it, but we fail a lot of the time. How much of that is down to uh, my fault or the producer's fault or the difficulties that we have in actually achieving something that might reflect the actual people who live in this country? Look, I think for me, I always have this difficulty where sometimes I get phone calls from uh, broadcast outlets and they say, you know, we need a female on the panel. So can you come on? And I have this uh, notion, this concept that I shouldn't be asked to be on just because I have certain bodily parts. You know, I would rather be brought on because... I have an expertise in the area in which they're going to be discussing or whatever. There just seemed to, there just seemed to be a level of consciousness that's on broadcasters' shoulders in particular with regards to panel discussions and so forth. Um, I think the difficulty, though, is that, you know, the, the calibre of females that willing to speak about the referendum on the Eighth Amendment, I mean, the fact that you had one woman on a panel to talk about 
a referendum which was driven. No, it wasn't actually a debate driven. about the referendum. Okay, it was a debate well, about the whole political landscape in Ireland. But given the time, you know, given what has happened, the referendum was the was the prime subject. You know? Well, yeah, I mean, given that that was that is the most monumental social decision that this country has taken, and probably the biggest political um, issue that has dominated the political agenda for the last year and a half. You know, it, it, it there are plenty of female political correspondents. There are fen- plenty of female politicians who played active roles in the referendum campaign. It just doesn't stand up to scrutiny. Like, I think, you know, to be fair, look, if you asked me to go to the summary economic statement yesterday and cover the press conference, I, my eyes would have glazed over as yours did at the beginning of this. I ju- it's just, it, it's not my cup of tea. Fiat loves the, economy, the economics of it. So we leave him at it. But <laughs> I, I, so I don't think, you know, you can be critical of a photograph like that. But and it's actually not reflective of um, no, not the political correspondence in Leinster House. Gallery looks is it not? No. Well, like, what is this politically? I mean, you're you're a, a senior 50, figure in the gallery these about, days. It's about fifty, fifty or sixty, it? forty. I'd say like there was there was a, there was a very striking picture taken for International Women's Day of all the not all of them actually not all of them no. were present uh, sure. taken of all the female uh, journalists who work out of Leinster House, and it was a compare and contrast to a picture taken even. I think 12 years ago and the difference was amazing like there was only a handful yeah. of women reporting from the doll at that size the rest were very kind of middle aged men and down and now there was a lot more women there is like that. that's to be fair that is that picture although it looked like I'm running that far I'll, I'll, I'll stick it up on Twitter after Todd the Unches podcast so it's saying there we are all the lads like but that's not representative <laughs> of the press gallery no I don't think it's representative but I think sometimes photographs and perhaps panel discussions are a crude barometer as to the level of you know uh, of um, they do reflect some realities, though. About, I mean, I think the organizer of McGill, Joe, Joe Mulholland, was saying something along the lines of, "We couldn't get women in with the, well, the required levels I, of expertise to I, contribute on some of the well, subjects." Which Joe, I, I never got surprising. a call from you, and I'm pretty sure that I'd be more than willing and able to discuss whatever political discussion you're going to have up in McGill Summer School. But I never got the call, so you know, I'll pass you on my number. Perhaps maybe you can <laughs> think about it at a future occasion. Look, the people who are up there are perfectly entitled to be up there, like Fintan O'Toole is going to be up there. Stephen Collins is going to be up there representing the Irish Times. You know, In full agreement with each other, I should say. <laughs> as, as always. As I, always. I, miss, I miss those old Fintan <laughs> Stephen spats we used to have in here. But if you, you know, there are plenty of other women commentators. Like if you look at perhaps, you know, Stephen's role as a columnist, as a former political editor of this paper and a good friend of mine, I, I, I have nothing but kind words to say about that man. But if, if you look at his role, you know, Justine McCarthy from the Sunday Times, perhaps. Sarah McInerney, uh, former Sunday Times political uh, correspondent, uh, presenter on TV3 and RTE. There's, there's, uh, you know, that money name in one or two. Ursula Halligan, Miriam Lord. Anybody? <laughs> we could go on and on. Absolutely. We'd all love to see the Miriam Lord behind a microphone. That's how it's going to work in progress. Listen, we do have to leave it there. We've probably run over, but uh, that was very entertaining and insightful from both of you. Thanks very much to Fia and Sarah for joining us today. And that's it for this edition of Inside Politics. Thanks very much to our producer, Jennifer Ryan, and engineer, JJ Vernon. Remember that you can subscribe to us on iTunes or your preferred podcast provider. You can also find us at irishtimes.com slash podcast. And your views are always very welcome. You can mail me or you can always find me on Twitter, although maybe not for the next couple of weeks because I'll be off on holidays. Then My seat will be held by Pat Leahy very capably, I'm sure. Hopefully it'll still be here when I get back. But until then, goodbye and thanks very much indeed for listening.